This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture that believers in Christ, freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone and united to Christ through faith alone, are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. It's easy to imagine that sanctification is the result of an immediate action by God upon the soul. By immediate, I mean that the Spirit is thought to act without using means. In the history of the Church, more than a few people have thought this way. The Reformed Confessions would have us think differently, however. The Heidelberg Catechism doesn't begin explaining sanctification in detail until after it has completed its doctrine of the sacraments and the ministry of the Word. The Westminster Confession casts the Christian life as one that involves the due use of ordinary means. The Church has also been tempted at times to turn the sacraments into magic. We call that temptation sacerdotalism, after the Latin word for priest. But Christ is our high priest, and on earth we have ministers of word and sacrament, not priests. Here to help us think about how to relate the Christian life to the means of grace is Dr. Michael Horton, J. Gresham Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics for Westminster Seminary, California. Most recently, he's author of Pilgrim Theology, Core Doctrines for Christian Disciples. This title is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. This is the second of a two-part episode, and we begin our episode where the discussion ended last time. Even on the analogy of creation, right? Yeah. God spoke creation into existence. Even on the analogy of Ezekiel 37, what did the Lord say? Say to these dead bones. So it's always, as far as we can tell, through the Word. It's the Spirit operating, and He's sovereign, and He's free. But He's a speaker. But he's a speaker, and he operates through means. Absolutely. So affirming the divine use of means doesn't make one an Arminian, right? No, exactly. Yeah, I find it very hard to believe that a view that says God is the one doing the speaking, even through a sinful human being, God is the one who's speaking. Christ is the one who is reconciling sinners to his Father by being present with his word. I'm just summarizing Romans 10. How could that possibly be considered Arminian? So I understand the history and why people are concerned. That's one area, though, where I think that some have gone too far in trying to solve a logical problem or question in a way that doesn't have sufficient exegetical support, and we don't really need it because God is the one who's preaching. Christ is the one who's doing the saving through the word that he speaks, even through the lips of ordinary people. As we emphasize the importance of means, it's also important to recognize and remember that there have been those in the history of the church, particularly in the medieval period, and today in the modern period in the 19th century in the Anglo-Catholic movement, and of course in the Roman communion, and possibly in the Mercersburg movement, and in our own time, the Federal Vision movement and, and other such groups, 
there have been movements to make the sacraments and the Word, but particularly the sacraments, do more than they are meant to do. And sometimes we've described that as sacerdotalism. So what's the problem with sacerdotalism? What's the problem with attributing to the sacraments more than they actually do? Yeah, well, sacerdotalism specifically is priestcraft. So it's a slightly different question. I know people typically mean too much emphasis on the sacraments when they say sacerdotal, but it's important to see even without sacerdotalism, you can have too much of an emphasis on what the sacraments do. I like to put it this way, mainly just to shock people. No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The sacraments don't do anything. The Holy Spirit does everything. But at that point, you know, when Zwingli and friends are cheering me on, I want to turn to them and say, but wait. Well, Luther said the same thing, right? Exactly. Through the sacraments, God does these things. See, this is the two parts here that we often divide over. Those who hold to the efficacy of the sacraments in and of themselves, just by doing it, it is done. Those who hold that position make the means the efficient cause. Not the instrumental cause, but the efficient cause. In other words, they make the sacraments really the Savior rather than the means through which the Savior works. And they turn the sacraments into magic, right? Exactly. Well, that's what has to happen if you think the sacraments themselves are doing this. Then on the other side, in reaction against that, you have many Protestants who say, well, the sacraments merely point to your acceptance of or obedience to the Lord and His work. What we say as Reformed Christians is, no, God is the one, not the sacraments, God is the one who is saving, but He saves through His ordinary means of grace. And so uh, you can't say the sacraments themselves are effective simply by being done, but you also cannot say that the sacraments are not means through which the Lord actually does his saving work. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So confessional Reformed people are in between those who turn the sacraments into magic and those who deny that God ordinarily operates through his ordained means, the due use of ordinary means. Let's be really, really clear, though. When we're emphasizing in the Reformed tradition and confessions the importance of means in the Christian life for growing, and even emphasizing that it's ordinarily through means that God brings us to new life and to faith, and through faith, union with Christ— We're not saying what, for example, the federal visionists are saying, that when a person is baptized, they are necessarily elect, necessarily through baptism given new life, necessarily through baptism united to Christ, adopted, etc. Only conditionally, only historically. We're not saying that right. It'd be a little difficult to find Old Testament or New Testament passages that would suggest that Esau or Ishmael were elect and regenerate, and then lost their election and regeneration. But I've had federal visionists say precisely that in a very similar sort of dialogue. I've said to one of them, so was Esau elect, thinking of Romans 9, which says, before either of them had done anything, right? right? (laughs) Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And the federal visionist said to me, no, Esau was elect, and he lost his election because he didn't cooperate sufficiently with the grace that he was given in the sacraments. So what's the problem of in by baptism 
stay in by cooperation with baptism. Wow. Well, I mean, first of all, people just have to realize that that's worse than Rome. Traditional Roman Catholic teaching is totally opposed to any notion that you lose your election. Now, Roman Catholics and Lutherans do believe that you can lose your regenerate state, you can lose your faith, you can lose your justification, everything that comes with faith, but neither body talks about losing your election. So the Federal Vision folks, ironically, claiming to be Reformed, take a step beyond Lutheran and Reformed views on this matter and really teach something that is remarkably different from anything that broader Augustinian heritage has heard. But you know a lot more about this than I do. I think that it's not just in the Federal Vision movement. There is a tendency sometimes, I think, for people to be running away from their Baptist background or their low church background. Which downplays means. Yeah, exactly. Always fearful of Rome, not really fearful of Gnosticism. And running from that background, being really amazed by the rich sacramental theology that you find in the Reformed Confessions, and they just keep moving. It becomes a drug. The goal is not to find yourself where you believe the Scriptures lead you, but really to just keep on that, you know, climbing up the candle, as it were, and becoming higher and higher and higher church. The next new thing, the next exciting discovery. Exactly. It becomes the next buzz. We've got to be really careful about not being directed by our feelings, not being directed by our sense about what is cool and what is more attractive to our aesthetic sensibilities. Or even liturgical storm chasing. I mean, there are two different ways of storm chasing. Exactly. What they share in common is will worship. Basically, I'm going to decide what I like, and it's consumerism. Now, we've got to stay with the Word here. And if Scripture tells us that baptism affects regeneration simply by being applied, then we must believe that. But, of course, Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture teaches that baptism is the means through which we grab onto Jesus for all all we have. That this is the, as it were, the rope, not even the rope that he lets down as if we're crawling up, but this is the net he lets down from the helicopter to pull us out of the water. This is how Christ comes to us. It's not baptism versus Christ. This is the gospel made visible. Exactly. Well, it doesn't do any more or any less than the gospel. That's right. If faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, then baptism is the means through which he signifies and seals that visible union with Christ that still has to be realized through faith. In both cases, you know, a person isn't converted, that is, doesn't come to exercise personal repentance and faith, simply by being zapped by the Word. Just as through preaching, we receive faith to embrace Christ with all of his benefits, and yet have to believe, have to exercise that faith, place that faith in Christ in order to be justified. Which itself is a gift. Which itself is a gift. The same is true in baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are gifts. God is giving these gifts to elect and non-elect alike. But only the elect, or I should say only those who receive the gifts in faith, actually receive what is promised. 
So God is, is not just giving the gifts to some people and not to others. He is exhibiting, conferring, giving, holding out these packages, actually in a well-meant way, giving these gifts to everyone who receives, but only those who receive the gift in faith actually do receive Christ with all of his benefits. And that's a position that separates us from the Zwinglians on one side, which would include most of evangelicalism, and our Lutheran brothers and sisters on the other side, and certainly Roman Catholic folks further along that spectrum. As a church historian, I have always believed that the confessions of the Reformed churches are the best summary of biblical teaching, and I continue to believe that, and I think our seminary is strongly committed to that. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. We are increasingly in an evangelical world where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and the wisdom of the fathers, the best students of Scripture in the history of the church, are encapsulated for us in the confessions, and we need to preserve that and know that and enthusiastically serve with a commitment to that. And I think it's a commitment that is more needed in our time than it's ever been needed. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Pastor Mike, people don't always perhaps think of you that way, but you are a pastor, and you are in the pulpit, and you are meeting with people and counseling and talking with... So someone comes to you and says... You know, I'm really struggling in my Christian life, and, and I've been involved in things that you know, I shouldn't have, and I'm not where I, I know I should be. And you ask me the first diagnostic question, and what would that be? Are you making use of the means of grace? Now, if they don't know what that means, I'd explain means of grace, but shorthand. Are you attending church regularly? Are you hearing the gospel preached? Exactly. Are you participating in the sacraments? Well, you know, I, I feel guilty. So, no, I really haven't been going lately because I just, I don't feel like I fit in. You know, they all have it together and I clearly don't. And so I'm kind of waiting till I get things together before I I go back and and really start attending. Well, that's where I'm going to go to the third mark (laughs) and say, I'll ask you, did you make vows, public vows in a congregation that you would be a member of this church? And Yeah, I did. You're not going to hold me to those, are you? (laughs) Uh, not if our promises don't mean anything, it seems to be, in this culture. No, look, you can't excommunicate yourself, which is basically what you're saying. You're saying you're not good enough, and Christ, through his church, is telling you, none of us is good enough, but you better be in church next Sunday, precisely so that you can receive God's gifts that he gives to sinners who aren't good enough. And you have made vows. You need to fulfill those vows. You're obligated to be a part of the people of God. What you're doing right now is doing what's right in your own eyes. You're basically judging yourself when God has placed elders over us to guide us and to indicate to us whether we are following the Lord as we should. So you've already decided that you're not, and therefore the church is a place for people who are, and we're telling you, no, the church is a place for sinners who are justified and are being sanctified, but are a mess. And if you are, then you're welcome to join us. More than being welcome, you're obligated to be there because you are in Christ. If you're baptized and you're a member of our church, we want to see you next week. And paradoxically, by not attending, that person is actually cutting themselves off from the very thing that God has ordained 
to encourage them, to strengthen them, and to build them up in their faith. And I'm not saying that a person who is impenitent, right, who isn't confessing their sin, should come to the table. I'm not saying that a person who is impenitent, who is not sorry for their sin and not confessing and not turning away from it, should come to the table carelessly. But if a person is aware of their sin, is confessing their sin, and truly sorry for it, then they really should be coming to the table, and they really should be hearing the gospel preached. It's for our weakness. Mm -hmm. It's not given as a reward. The Lord's table is not given as a reward for the faithful. It's given as a help for the weak. And we're all weak when you think about it. When you think of means of grace as God proclaiming Christ into your heart so that you cling to him for dear life, if you think of grace in those terms, that's what we mean by cutting yourself off from the means of grace. Basically, your faith shrivels, or it's like the temporary faith that just falls on rocky soil. It's choked by the weeds or beaten down by the sun. You've got to be in God's garden to grow. And your faith will wither, your faith will die. It's no surprise when people tell me, you know, I just, I've come to the place where I just, I don't believe that I can make it, or I don't think I'm good enough, or whatever. I ask them, when's the last time you were in church? And it was a long time ago. Or they were in a church that never really preached the gospel or administered the sacraments. That is why, pretty much, people who did at one time think they understood the gospel, suddenly find that they don't. This doesn't take rocket science, folks. If your flame is dying, and you haven't been in church, a church where you hear Christ proclaimed from Genesis to Revelation, you have not heard his word, then don't be surprised that the faith which comes by hearing the word of Christ is a glimmering candle rather than a bright glowing flame. A leading emergent thinker, writer, influential person has recently said that he's not going to church anymore. He's just gathering with some friends for fellowship, but he's sort of leaving church behind. He was a pastor of a mega church. Everyone would know his name, sold lots of books, been on television, but he's apparently leaving the visible church behind. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know what his, his background was, but it's very possible he wasn't part of a visible church to begin with. You know, part of the problem here is that it's not such a large step to go from saying that basically church is a place where we gather to catch up with each other and to have quote-unquote fellowship, reducing the means of grace to fellowship. It's not a small step from there to simply saying, well, I can do this with my friends at the pub or at Starbucks. So I think it's a logical outgrowth of the sort of no means of grace thinking in our day. I'm amazed. I just read someone I thought should have known better. Someone in a Protestant church who is a leader say, these are the things that make for a vital church life. These are what you should look for in a church. Okay, So when people ask us, what do you look for in a church? We say, word, sacraments, discipline. He said, five or six different things about they motivate you to do this, they get you to do that, they give you the experience of X, or they... It's all about basically getting you to do something. Folks have to realize that when we talk about the importance of the Word and the sacraments, we're not just talking about high church liturgy. We're talking about 
here's the big question. When you go to church, is it primarily about what you are doing and what the church has to do to get you to do it? Or is it primarily about what God is doing serving you because you can't serve yourself? And then by serving you and each other, filling you with grateful praise and thanksgiving, and then from that service to you and to your fellow saints, makes you into a communion of saints who then love and care for each other and then share your gifts on Monday with the world. Two totally different outlooks, and I suspect that most people listening to us right now, Scott, have a lot, a lot of experience with the former and not a lot of experience with the latter. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. How can someone who's been going faithfully to church and listening to the gospel and participating in the sacraments, how can they think about those in a way that will help the believer properly appreciate what's really taking place? What do they need to know and understand as they hear the minister announcing the gospel and as they are receiving the elements in their hands or or watching uh, someone's child receive the sign and the seal of the covenant of grace? What do they need to know to understand that? They need to realize that in biblical terms, in, in the context in which these events are instituted, it's not a magic show, it's a political event. Basically, these rites are taken by analogy from the world of politics, not the world of religion or magic. Basically, a lesser king rescued by a greater king would be caused to pass through the pieces of cut animals, and he would be assuming on his own head the curses if he doesn't now follow in everything that the great king has told him to do. What's amazing in our covenant of grace is that in Genesis 15, God walked through the pieces. And in the upper room, Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, this shed for you, not splashed on you as it was at Mount Sinai when Moses splashed the blood on the people in accordance with all their words, all this we will do. Now, Jesus is saying, all this I will do, and he did it, said it is finished. And now what he's doing is applying those benefits and in a public political ratification ceremony, he's ratifying his covenant, his constitution, that not only to others, but to you, he is promising everlasting life, Christ with all of his benefits. That is the best possible news. So when you wonder, you know, I know, but God takes you to the font and he puts water on your head, or he, by his spirit, recalls you to your baptism. Yeah, yeah, but, but I still, and God takes you over gently, puts his arm around you, takes you over to the table, and strengthens you with Christ's body and blood. Yeah, but I don't, you know, we do that with the preaching all the time. You hear the preacher and I say, yeah, that's true for others, but I'm not sure it's true for me. Or, wow, I don't see that in my life. With baptism and the Lord's Supper, God is saying, you, by name, you, Mike, yeah, you, this is for you. And I, it stops my butts. At that point, I just say, you win. Your grace is greater than all my sin. And that's why I love John Calvin's line, the word issues God's forgiveness, but the sacraments bring the clearest promises. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. 
Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.